Welcome everybody, my name is Mikal Nasrani, and this is Islam for Christians. Episode 8, The Quran. The Quran is not the Bible. I went into detail on this in an earlier episode, but it's really, really hard to overemphasize this point. The Quran is not the Bible. It's a book about similar people, and it's about the God of Abraham, and it's a critical cog of a major religion. But that's pretty much where the similarities end. The archetype of the Christian Bible is the novel. It has a beginning and end, characters, protagonists, antagonists, and all the hallmarks of classic literature. The closest Christian equivalent would be the Psalms, but the Psalms were the poetry of a man. The Quran, for Muslims, is the poetry of God. Chronologically, the first revelation of the Quran is this. Read, in the name of thy Lord who createth, createth man from a clot. Read, and thy Lord is the most bounteous, who teacheth by the pen, teacheth man that which he knew not. So where in the Quran is this? Where do we find the beginning? Toward the back, of course. Surah 96, verses 1 to 5. Those are the first lines ever revealed to Muhammad. So please, please, please do not approach the Quran as you would the Bible. Do not do what I did the first time. Do not pick up the Quran. Read it from the beginning. Get five minutes into the surah of the cow and put it down. I never did get to the cow. You know why? Because it's one of the longest surahs in the Quran, if not the longest. And it's not about a cow either. It's about many things, the least of which is a cow. It's just called that because it includes a reference to a cow sacrifice in its 6,000 plus words. Al-Baqarah, or the cow, is just a shorthand reference. It's also why I tend to refer to surahs by their numbers, not their names. It's just a personal preference. Pious Muslims tend to use the names. For me, it's not Al-Baqarah. It's not the cow. It's two. Surah two. Again, just a personal preference. Remember the surahs however you like. So here's the basic structure of the Quran. There are 114 surahs, that's S-U-R-A-H, surah, which are like chapters, but not chapters in the literary sense. Forget what the Bible has taught you about what a religious text should be. After the first surah, which is a lovely seven-line prayer, the surahs are ordered roughly from longest to shortest. Narrating surah two would likely take more than an hour. The last, Surah 114, can be recited in about 10 seconds. The content can vary wildly, usually within the Surah itself, actually. But all Surahs are usually broken down into two types, Meccan and Medinan. The Meccan Surahs are the early ones, called that because they were revealed in Mecca, before the ouster and pilgrimage to Medina. These tend to be more spiritual, focusing on religious concepts, thunderous apocalyptic imagery, and the affirmation of Islam's monotheism. They tend to be much shorter as well, which is why they're concentrated toward the back of the Quran. The Medinan surahs came after the year 622, when Muhammad was not just a religious, but a political and military leader. The content reflects this. There's plenty of mixing the holy with the mundane here, with revelations regarding often very specific actions or events. These are concentrated toward the front, and they are very long. One surah that fits none of these types is Surah 12, Yusuf, or in Western tongue, Joseph. 
This entire surah is a biblical-style narrative. The only one, actually, that is like that. And it tells the tale of Joseph, the Old Testament Joseph, not Jesus' stepfather. For those new to Islam, I've always recommended reading the Quran backwards, or better yet, listen to it in Arabic and then with a translation. One thing to remember is that, in its purest form, the Quran is meant to be heard and recited, not read. And for some surahs, the mood is simply lost in a translation. Especially in some of the earliest surahs, there is a clear meter and rhyme that is trying to establish a certain mood. Um, don't worry, I'll give you a few examples of what I'm talking about. Open a Quran, go to Quran.com, or one of the other online Qurans that are widely available, and go to Surah 81. Here's the Arabic, as recited by Saad al-Gandhi. Notice the rhyme scheme here. The first dozen or so lines end with a long at sound. If you're looking at Arabic print, that is the wide U shape with the two dots on top of it. This sound, deliberately repeated, is the foreboding drumbeat, establishing the mood. Each line begins with a conjunction, linking it to the previous line, and creating a laundry list to emphasize the enormity of what is happening. It transitions to ending in S sounds, then moving to N and M sounds as the point of the sermon is delivered. The M sounds are the upside-down music notes, and the N sounds are the U's with the single dot. The rhyme scheme tells a story, and it uses a style that is completely invisible in the English version. Here's another exercise. Pause this and go to Surah 55. Read the whole thing if you have time, 
but at least read the first 30 or 40 lines. In English, by the way. Uh, no need for the Arabic on this one. Now, for those of you who did it, did you find yourself skipping every other line? For those who didn't read it, basically every other line of this Sora is, which is it of the favors of your Lord that ye deny? This Sora focuses on the power of God and what it can do to punish or reward a person. And it uses that interlude, which is it of the favors of your Lord that ye deny, to drive home the point. But if you're reading it just to absorb information, you can miss much of what the Quran is trying to convey. Even in English, simply reading that surah out loud conveys a message in a completely different way than if it had been read. Of course, some of the Quran is just information, just plain information. Not all of it is poetry, particularly when you get into certain parts of the Medinan surahs. But it's the artistic quality that makes the Quran so inseparable from the Arabic language. It's almost impossible to fully appreciate the Quran in a language other than Arabic. This is true for the Bible in Hebrew and Greek as well, but to a much lesser degree. On that note, a quick word on Quran translations. I don't expect anyone to learn Arabic to understand the Quran in its original language. The vast majority of Muslims don't even take this step. And even if they did, they wouldn't have the feel of the language that a native does. So understanding the Quran overwhelmingly falls to translations. And a short disclaimer here, technically there is no such thing as a translation of the Quran. The Quran is in Arabic, period. Those are God's words. Translations then are really interpretations. But for the sake of simplicity, feel free to call them translations. And when it comes to translations, I recommend older translators that predate Saudi oil money. Just a personal bias, the older ones seem less focused on making a political point or satisfying donors with an agenda. A pretty good older translation is Yusuf Ali, although the Saudis have managed to change it over time. My favorite, by leaps and bounds, is Marmaduke Pickthall. Pickthall was an English convert who completed his spectacular work in 1930. It focuses on the spiritual and poetic aspects, trying to maintain the original language rather than trying to shape its meaning. In short, if you want to know what the Arabic literally says, read Pickthall. And if you're a native English speaker, so was Pickthall. Whenever I give a verse in English, it will be from him. And it's also in the public domain. That's a bonus. Okay. So now I want to go back to the beginning of the Quran, literally. I recommend reading the Quran backwards, with the exception being Surah 1. Read 1, then 114, and keep going backwards. This Surah is named Al-Fatiha, and on the surface it looks like an opening prayer. But it is Surah 1 for a reason. Al-Fatiha is the most concise summary of Islam that there is, far better than the five pillars of Islam. For those who don't know, the five pillars of Islam are the profession of faith, praying five times a day, paying the poor tax, fasting during Ramadan, and the pilgrimage to Mecca. It's pretty good, but this doesn't even come from the Quran. It's from numerous hadiths, meaning Muhammad said it on his own behalf. No, far better is Al-Fatiha. This is Al-Fatiha from the Marmaduke Pickthall translation. Al-Fatiha means the opening. In the name of Allah, the Beneficent, the Merciful. 
Praise be to Allah, Lord of the worlds, the beneficent, the merciful, master of the day of judgment. Thee alone we worship. Thee alone we ask for help. Show us the straight path, the path of those whom thou hast favored, not the path of those who earn thine anger, nor of those who go astray. In Arabic, it sounds like this. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen Ar-Rahman Ar-Rahim Maliki Yawmiddin Iyaka Na'budu wa Iyaka Nasta'in Ihdina Sirata Al-Mustaqim Sirata Al-Ladhina An'amta Alayhim Ghayri Al-Maghdubi Alayhim that's the whole religion in some right there everything else stems from this root uh let's go through this call it the seven pillars of al-fatiha keep in mind the entire surah is a prayer which is in itself also a pillar of islam this prayer is recited by an observant muslim at least 17 times every day Line number one, in the name of Allah, the beneficent, the merciful. This preamble begins nearly every surah in the Quran, but in this surah, it is a part of the surah itself. This is an acknowledgement that you are entering a holy realm in the name of Allah and his two most beautiful descriptive names. Both are reminders that God is merciful and caring despite his power and exalted status. Line number two. Praise be to Allah, Lord of the worlds. All praise should be directed to God, who is the sovereign of his entire creation. He is the Lord of all worlds, seen and unseen. All agency anywhere in the universe is his alone, not lesser gods, who do not exist, and certainly not men. The Arabic word used for Lord here also implies not just dominion, but sustaining and bringing to maturity. Kind of like a gardener. Allah is the Lord of this garden, and God cares for all his gardens and the plants in them. Line number three, the beneficent, the merciful. This is another reminder about God's merciful and caring attributes. These Arabic words come from a verb that means to womb, which is a good maternal analogy for how God views his creation. I should also note that the Islamic God is not a he or a she or a they or a we, or an I. The Quran mixes pronouns intentionally, showing that Allah is not male or female or anything else. Allah is above human descriptions. Line number four, master of the day of judgment. Here's some Islamic apocalypticism and eschatology. Eschatology is a theological word for what comes at the end, meaning after the world or after a person's life. Everyone will be judged in the end. And based on a person's actions on earth, there will be a suitable reward or punishment. The day of judgment is a literal event. It can be used metaphorically as well. But in this sense, it's the actual day when the cosmic justice is handed out by God. God is in charge of the entire lifespan of the universe, beginning to end. And whether a being profits from existence is ultimately up to God. The alone we worship. Sorry, line number five. The alone we worship 
thee alone we ask for help. Prayers are offered directly to God, and only God can hear petitions. There are many ways to look at this. In a less literal sense, worshiping God means being a good Muslim here on earth, particularly with one's actions, and it means valuing what God values. The alone do we ask for help can mean that you seek the Lord's answers rather than your own, what a Christian might call seeking the kingdom. And in a literal sense, this means communication is directly human to God. No saints, no intermediaries, and no praying to Jesus or Muhammad. Line number six, show us the straight path. Understanding the straight path means being blessed by God, because if you see the path and you follow it, paradise is assured. One of the major issues that divides Christians and Muslims is what human beings need from God. Christians, in one form or another, believe that humans need redemption. This is how paradise is achieved, the redemption of a fallen species through the grace of God. Muslims, on the other hand, believe this is ridiculous. Human beings are fickle and forgetful. Humanity just needs guidance. And that guidance is Islamic law, the straight path to paradise. Line number seven, the path of those whom thou hast favored not the path of those who earn thine anger, nor of those who go astray. There are many Quranic passages where God hardens someone's heart. This is kind of like an Islamic curse. And it also raises a chicken and egg paradox in regard to sin. Does a person go astray because God cursed them, or are they cursed because they went astray? Muslim theologians have debated this for a long time. You can ask the same question about those whom God has favored. Either way, the key is God. And how does one know what God wants? The Quran. And how does one best understand the Quran? God's messenger, Muhammad. In other words, there is no God but God, and Muhammad is the messenger of God. A small aside here. Notice the implied equality of width in the two paths meaning the path to heaven and the path to hell. Contrast that with Matthew. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it, but small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. So Islam has two paths, roughly the same width, whereas Christianity has a six-lane superhighway to hell but only a narrow door to salvation. That's because the standard for salvation is much higher in Christianity than in Islam. In an old Simpsons episode, a lazy Homer remarks that he's just trying to get into heaven. He's not running for Jesus. The irony here is that in traditional Christianity, to get into heaven, you do actually have to run for Jesus. Divine grace that elevates you in worthiness to God is the only path. In a sense, you need a divine element to enter paradise. A Muslim with an assist from God and his messengers is trying to get in on merit, and this is possible because the required level of divinity is much, much lower. In Christianity, we must be raised to God. In Islam, God just opens the gate to those he considers to be worthy. So if you start to read the Quran as it is presented in a book, that prayer will be followed by the Surah of the Cow, or Surah 2. But before you get into the hundreds of lines that never mention a cow, 
you're going to be doubly confused by the very first verse of Surah 2. It'll say, Alif, Lam, Mim. This is another aspect of the Quran we should go over, the disjointed letters. Alif, Lam, Mim are not Arabic words. They are Arabic letters spoken separately at the start of Surah 2. They're the English equivalent of A, L, and M. These letters, different ones in different orders, occur in many other surahs as well, and are usually referred to as the disjointed letters. Just imagine if you saw something like that in the Bible. Say, A-L-M. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth. So what does it mean? This is the brilliant part, actually. No one really knows. There are plenty of options, but none are authoritative. There's no hadith explaining them. They're pretty brilliant when you think about it, actually, adding to the mystery of the Quran and 1,400 years of scholars slamming their heads against the wall trying to make sense of this. It's even more perplexing when you consider that Muhammad was an illiterate, conveying these verses orally but using letters. I suspect they're just a poetic device to enhance mystery, a reminder that you will never fully grasp the infinite majesty of God. But honestly, my opinion is just as worthless as that of anyone else. There really is no Christian equivalent of this. Well, maybe the movie Pi, uh, where a Hasidic Jew is convinced that the main character has cracked a biblical code of some kind. I'd love to see a similar movie about a Muslim man who loses his mind trying to crack the code of the disjointed letters. Uh, incidentally, Surah 2, verse 140 of the Quran, did make it into that film. That's a Pi, just P-I, old film, I think, from the 90s or early 2000s. I think I've covered most of what I wanted to in regards to the Quran. So to finish up, I want to mention the Hafiz. The first time I heard the term Hafiz was in relation to a spectacular Persian poet, an Islamic mystic named Hafiz. If you can get a hold of a good translation of his poetry, I highly recommend it. H-A-F-I-Z. But Hafiz simply means someone who has memorized the Quran. Just take one look at the Quran and it seems impossible. I couldn't do it, but it's actually pretty common. I've talked to a few people who grew up in the Middle East who swear that Hafiz is more accurate than a printer, meaning they actually notice errors in printed versions of the Quran. It's a beautiful thought, but I am a bit skeptical. Human memory is notoriously unreliable, which is why we write things down in the first place. But what if that's only true in the modern world, in our world? What if these people are truly old world thinkers? Our brains have changed in the information age. We have access to what is essentially a giant external hard drive we call the internet. Storing specific information isn't as important as it used to be. And our brains know that, and they have adjusted accordingly. Kids of a certain age have never even had to memorize a phone number. But what if brains were just different in the old world than they are now? True story here. I was in a Jewish temple looking at the scroll the host had unraveled that contains the Torah. It's an old-school scroll with two spools, no markers or reference points of any kind. And I told him, I just can't imagine the great teachers like Hillel and others gathering to talk Torah and having to constantly find passages to reference or prove that it was said what they thought that it said. But I was missing something rather obvious here. And the temple host, to his credit, picked up on it right away. 
anyone seriously talking Torah in that time would have had the whole thing memorized. That's the old world. And I think it's a skill we have simply lost as writing has become more common. It's also the reason I find the oral transmission of the Gospels far more credible 2,000 years ago than if the same thing had happened in our day. We're almost a different species in the way we process information. In the old world, stories were spoken and heard. The Quran is in that mold. It is oral and oral. That's oral, O-R-A-L, and oral, A-U-R-A-L, meaning something that is heard. A Syrian once told me that it was common that a bus driver, when the passengers would get to unruly, would put in a cassette of the Quran. Just the sound of it calmed everyone down. That's powerful oration, something which gave the Quran appeal from the beginning. So I would listen to the Quran as well as read it, but you can also recite it. If you pull up an online Quran, you don't need to read Arabic to make the sounds. Just look for the option that says transliteration and it'll spell out the sounds in Latin characters, which you recognize. It's not a perfect system, but you'll get most of it. Uh, that's all I have on the Quran, so thank you, and I'll talk to you next time. Inshallah. Thank you for listening to Islam for Christians. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to keep this show ad-free, you can also visit my Patreon page and subscribe. I'm at patreon.com slash Islam for Christians. That's patreon.com slash Islam for Christians.